Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Hannah. And this morning, our scripture reading is from 1 Peter. So please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapters 4, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 from the New American Standard Bible. All right. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which, be, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and the God and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of your sufferings as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, second service. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, we are in a series called Faith, Hope, and Love in the book of First Peter. Next week is Father's Day, and appropriately so, we're going to be uh, talking about the role of elders and authority in our lives and how God uses and wants to use authority to convey his love and protection over us. And so I think it's going to be very appropriate for fathers and those who love fathers or long for a father. Uh, I think next week is going to be great. So be sure to come to church at what time? 10. 10 a.m. next week. And then um, to your Father's Day thing for those of you with such plans. And then after that, we're going to be completing the book of First Peter. And so uh, we've done a few books now uh, in the last few years, and I'm happy to have preached First Peter for the first time. Today, uh, Peter, Apostle Peter, is circling us back to this idea of suffering and difficulty and pain. And it's, uh, it's in a slightly different way than we've emphasized before and I've drawn a lot of nutrients from this uh, study this week. So we have difficulty, and then we have the fact of difficulty, and how we are called to grow through this difficulty. And I framed it for us in uh, two different sections. The first one, all problems are three problems. Did you know that? And second, all problems have one purpose or one door through which we are called to walk. Okay? We will start with all problems are three problems in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Difficulty, pain, and suffering 
what Peter calls fiery ordeals, are absolute realities, inevitabilities of life. Have you figured this out yet? Have you come to terms with this fact that life is difficult? Yes? Yes. Honeymoon stage is over. It was over when you were born. It was so nice in the womb, wasn't it? It was great. And now here we are living this thing we call life. And it's filled with difficulty, pain, and suffering. And if you were to pluck Peter's audience, right, who are undergoing persecution and things too horrible for us to mention or think about too long, if we pluck that group and plunk them into your perfect little life, they would still, sociologists and psychologists tell us, within about 60 days, begin to feel like life is filled with difficulty, pain, and suffering. And so the fact that his audience, intended audience, is uh, we're living a different life than us, it doesn't diminish our suffering. It doesn't take away from the fact that our life is difficult, filled with pain and suffering. Your experience today, whatever you bring to the table, what life story you bring with you, it's very much legitimate. And there's an invitation to address it fully as it is, not the way sometimes we dismiss it as it ought to be. Life really is hard. I love this verse. I came across this uh, in my reading this week, and I just thought it was great. Job is a character in the Bible uh, who suffered a great deal. And uh, he had very unhelpful friends who insisted on journeying with him through the process of his suffering. And uh, this is in chapter 2. Speaking of Job's friends, says this, Then they, the friends, sat down on the ground with him, Job, for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. Fiery ordeal. Don't you love that? When you really look in the face of suffering, you really have nothing to say. No way to explain just how painful and difficult really life can be. So the first problem uh, of the three that Peter reminds us of is the fiery ordeal that is upon you. And there are times when it really feels like it's upon you. You didn't plan for that on that day. But here you are spending the whole day in the emergency room. Did not see that one coming. Did not plan on that. Did not ask for that. And here you are. Or it could be relational conflict financial woes. It could just be your own personal little demon that's just on you and you just feel down, depressed. Why? Why is this happening? First problem is that the fiery ordeal is upon you and it's painful, too painful for words. But notice very quickly, Peter points out a second problem. And that second problem is the surprise. So first there's a difficulty, and then there's the fact of difficulty. 
You know, first it's physical pain, and then it's philosophical pain. Ouch! Why does it hurt? And even deeper, why does it have to hurt? And then even deeper, you begin to understand that in somewhere in innate parts of your brain, there's some assumption you carried into this world that maybe you are supposed to be loved. Maybe you were supposed to be protected and nothing was supposed to go wrong ever. And so you're battling the problem, but then very quickly you're battling the fact of the problem and you're surprised by it. Uh, I want to catch you up a little bit on my marathon. Uh, My wife and I and a member of our church, Marshall Brown, we together ran... um, the North Olympic Discovery Marathon, and it started in a town that I used to pronounce Sequim. <laughs> Squim, as it turns out, to Port Angeles. And it was supposed to be this amazing run, and we trained for it and trained for it and trained for it. It was my sixth marathon, so heck, I was going to do well. Uh, but then, just excuses. What happened first was they changed the course on us. Supposed to go through beautiful uh, scenic routes uh, in the shade of uh, a trail system. But there was a bridge closure that they couldn't repair in time. So then they had us running, double backing on asphalt. And then the weather uh, gods decided it was going to be 77 to 82 degrees. And sun just baking us and sucking all of the moisture and salt out of our muscles. And so I started cramping at like mile six. And then there were hills going up. (laughs) And then on top of all of that, I was born with flat feet. And my goal was to have lost my love handles by the race day, but I hadn't. I mean, so many things went wrong. And it was so uncomfortable to run this race that people just started walking. And at mile 16, if you've ever seen or run a a marathon, you know they have these people called pacers. Pacers are people who are trained and qualified to run the marathon at a consistent pace so that they finish at the time that they're advertising on a stick the whole race. So uh, Susie's pacer said 3.55, meaning this pacer was going to finish at 3 hours and 55 minutes. Well, at mile 16, the pacer just stopped running (laughs) and turned around to his group and said, I'm sorry, it's just too hot. And gave up, and stopped running the race. That's how horrible it was. Nobody, it was like the Forrest Gump scene when he just stops running. <laughs> and so for the second half of the race, I spent the whole of my time composing the most awful Facebook post I could think of. And it started with the personal hell that is the marathon. Because we really were. You know, as Joseph Conrad says, sailors sail together, but each man drowns alone. And the marathon was that. It was just all running together, but we're all in our own personal hells, just asking, why is this happening? Why does it hurt so much? Why did I sign up for this race? I'm never going to do this again. All the while, just different parts of our body just screaming at us to stop. 
But really, the most difficult thing about the whole race was the fact that it was difficult. But really, the more difficult thing was my surprise at the fact that it was difficult. Uh, A really um, impactful author and thinker in my life is a a psychiatrist named M. Scott Peck. And he wrote a a bestseller, runaway hit, uh, called The Road Less Traveled in the 70s. And uh, what's so interesting about this book is in the middle of the soul searching that M. Scott Peck went through as he was writing this book, he converted himself from Buddhism to become a Christ follower right in the middle of the book. And then the interesting thing is he just published the book. He never decided to go back and change his view. So the book is Buddhist Scott Peck and then Christian Scott Peck. And he uh, sort of took the world by storm with this first sentence, life is difficult. And everybody said, oh my gosh, that resonates so much. I'm going to buy this book. So let me read it for the, uh, I'm sure you've just read it, but let me read it audibly for the recording. Life is difficult. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. There is difficulty, and then there is the fact of difficulty. Which is more difficult? The difficulty itself, or that you are experiencing difficulty, and your heart and your mind crying out, why? Your inability to accept the fact that life is difficult. And what I think Scott Peck is saying, and I think what Peter is alluding to here, is that we all have problems. We do. Either named or unnamed. We have owned them or we haven't owned them yet. But we all have them. But really the biggest problem in life is not knowing how to solve problems. Because once you know how to solve problems, they are no longer problems. Because by definition, problems haven't been solved yet. You know this. Remember when you were three and you had this huge problem in your life where you were just a nuisance to people and you held everybody up because everybody is waiting for you to tie your shoes. Not a problem anymore. You figured it out. You would never list that as a problem. It's solved. And then at age four, you had other problems. And then age 10 and 20 and 30 and 60. And here you are with X problems and problems. And those X problems, you've learned how to solve. And you know this when you look at other people more readily than when you see yourself. When you see other people, you more readily see patterns And you say, well, John's problem isn't what he's saying is the problem. I've heard this story before. He's always complaining about the same thing. So here we go again. John's problem actually isn't X, but it's Y. Because you see patterns in John's life. I think underneath some of the 
way we relate to problems really is this uh, divinely originating ache in our hearts. We kind of know we are meant to be loved and cared for and protected and sheltered and problems aren't supposed to exist. We are supposed to be in a kingdom with a king that's reigning with righteousness and peace and love. And when anything falls short of that, not only does it hurt, but the fact that it should have to hurt really hurts a lot. And in response to the pain and the surprise at the pain and the philosophical question and the aching longings of our hearts, we respond with a third problem. And that's verse 15. Peter says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. So the first problem is we have the fiery ordeal. The second problem is we are surprised at the fiery ordeal. And the third problem is, well, let me solve this problem by participating in the evil that's happening to me. Let me get vindictive and immature and biased and defensive. That should solve problems. And so now we have three problems. The first problem Surprise at the first problem. That's our second problem. And the third problem, our false solutions, our illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs, our ways of over-desiring things, our ways of trying to save ourselves actually lock us down and make sure that we have this problem forever. Uh, Susie and I used to live in Chicago And Chicago has really hot and humid summers and has really cold, windy windy winters. And so uh, we lived in this house that that was basically made of glass. It was at some points in the house, we had 23-foot ceilings with windows that were like 20 feet high. And so a huge problem was trying to insulate ourselves from the cold or from the heat. And uh, during our research and talking with different people, what we learned was that the key to a well-insulated home is the triad. You have to have not just a single uh, layer of curtains, but that curtain has to be not just two-ply, but three-ply. And somehow, when it's three-plied, then it keeps the warm in when we want it, and it keeps the heat out when we don't want it. And we learned that about windows too. If you want to really fully insulate your home, it's not a single pane glass that you need. You don't need a double pane glass. You actually need triple pane glass. Some of you know this. I think this is sort of a metaphor for life. When you are locked down by a triadic problem, you cannot solve the problem. And I'm telling you, And I think what Peter is saying is problems in your life have a tendency to become triplied. This is what I think the scriptures call dead in our trespasses. That we have sin and then we have our surprise at sin and then we contribute to that sin and so now we are locked in and locked down and we can't break out by ourselves.
you have to think about this for a second. You have to ponder your life and some of the patterns that have persisted over the course of your life. Maybe not what you think about you. Maybe what your friend thinks about you. What would your spouse say your patterns are? What would your friends say? What would your coworkers or managers say? What would those you manage say about you as a manager? What would your children say about you? What do you see in your children? What do your teachers think? They more readily see these triadic problems in your life. That you don't know how to solve problems. And really, that's your biggest problem. Because once you know how to solve, then you no longer have problems. You just have things you're moving through in life. You have tasks. And so Peter says in verse 18, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Just how hard it is to be saved. It is not easy to be saved. It is with difficulty that even the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? If we're a perfect person, it's that hard to break out of these triadic problems in our life. How much more? How much more when you don't even know that your problems are triadic in nature? What if the solutions you're putting forth are actually locking you in, setting you up, baking you in, and you don't even know that? So you continue to contribute, participate in the evil that you're upset about in the first place. It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. But then verse 19 says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. And here's what God is saying. Though you have problems and though you are surprised by your problems and though you respond to this problem with creating more problems, God is not surprised. God is not surprised at all by anything that ever happens. And he is providing a way, a will, if you will. There is a will. There is a specific way that God wants us to respond to the fact of suffering in our life. Your life is filled with difficulty, suffering, and pain. And the temptation is for us to think, you know, it's just happening to us. It's chaos. And this person is causing it. I'm contributing to it. And there's just no mess. God says, no, 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 no. I'm in this. This is not just happening to you. I have a will and a way forward in this. And there is a way to follow me out. And if you look, verse 19, therefore who also suffer, so he's not eliminating suffering, but suffer according to the will of God. Meaning, the way you got in is the only way you're going to get out. So you got in through suffering, so you're going to get out through suffering, but there is a guide this time. Jesus is going to lead you out, and he's going to take the brunt of the suffering for you. 
There's a way to suffer the way God wants you to suffer. And it's the way out. It's not to get you to just suffer and you figure out how to suffer well, but you just suffer anyway. No, it's to get out of suffering. But the only way out is the way you came in. It still involves suffering. So the way I want to explain this is by juxtaposing verse 19 and verse 13 together. I want to show you something because all problems actually have one purpose. Verse 19, to read it again, says this. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Now, this is so counterintuitive, folks. Think about this. This word, entrust, the word literally means to hang ourselves over something. So when you entrust someone or something, you're not active anymore. You're becoming passive. And you are positioning, positioning yourselves to be the recipients of another's action. That's what the word entrust means. And so just imagine, I think it's a really nice picture, seeing myself draped over without exercising my own will or muscle, just hanging over something else, just passive, receiving. And this is such an interesting idea to me, counterintuitive, because if I think about me being in a situation, a situation where I'm in dire straits, the thing that I think I should do is to actually be active rather than passive. I should be engaging my mind and my muscles and calling out and use tapping into all of my resources as a way to help myself. Well, what Peter is saying is actually, because of the triadic nature of the problems that you've gotten yourself into, you need a professional to come and to guide you out. And when a professional shows up, what the first thing they tell you is, calm down. Breathe. Stop moving. And so the picture that I have of me helping myself is not me climbing out, but it's me seeing a monster and me shutting my eyes and just flailing my arms like this and hoping that if I can do that for 20 seconds, and that's all I last, then I'm going to be okay. And the truth is, I'm not. I'm just wasting away for the enemy to consume me. And that's chapter 5. And so it's not actually counterintuitive to think that the advice Peter gives is hang yourselves over, be passive, receive rather than trying to get, receive rather than trying to earn. To who? You notice uh, faithful creator, this idea of creator comes out of nowhere. Why doesn't Peter say God? Why doesn't he say Jesus or Christ? Why creator? Well, because creator gives us the sense that God created us, that he's in control. It's, we're locked down, trapped by the triadic nature of our problems, and at best we're just flailing and adding to the problem and getting ourselves more stuck in the mud and then Peter says, no, 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 nothing crazy out of control is happening to you. God is here, and he understands everything. He's not surprised. 
He's not confused. He doesn't get tired. He's not worn out. He actually made you. He knows exactly how you're wired, and he is worthy of your trust. That's what he's saying. And so if I think about it and imagine it that way, this whole sentence now, rather than being counterintuitive, makes so much sense. If I have these patterns in my life that I'm trapped in, if I don't know how to save myself and my best efforts at trying to save myself have actually been aggravating the situation, then being passive makes so much sense if God is faithful, if God is the creator, if God cares, if he loves, if he actually is powerful and able to raise life from the dead, then that makes total and absolute sense. And this is the Christian message. Some of you may be sitting here, you're not Christians. You don't have a faith in Christ. It doesn't just mean you say a prayer. It means you have come to a place where you understand that life is not lived best by trying to live it hard. Your efforts don't mount to salvation. In the Christian message, there's somebody who knows the situation, who's not surprised by it, who's not reactive to it. And he's able to guide you out. You're lost, you're tangled, you're stuck. You follow this guy out. Because he took the trouble to come all the way in to exactly where you're at to meet you there and to lead you out. So verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. That is amazing right there. Notice it's not your suffering anymore. Peter started with your suffering, the fiery deal upon you, and now Christ is on the scene, and he says, no, 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 let me take the brunt of the suffering. You stay behind me. I'm going to be your pacer. Just follow me, and I'm not going to crap out on you just because it gets a little hot. It is fiery out here. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, his sufferings now, not yours. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. It's not so that you just learn how to suffer really well and that's your terminal des destiny. It's so that you can rejoice with exultation because he's going to lead you out of suffering. One day, suffering, difficulty, and pain will end. It will be no more. It feels like a lifetime, because it is. But it's temporary. And he is our guide. Now, it's very uncomfortable for me to say that, because it makes me feel like I'm minimizing the human existence, the plight of human existence. But you said so yourself. Many of you who have had many more years to live than me have told me. It goes like that. Doesn't it? It's just a blink. And kids are graduating high school already. 
It's just a blink. I mean, I was at a graduation party yesterday. The grads were 18 years old. Susie was 21 when she married me. Can you imagine being married in three years? No way. (laughs) Well, why not? Because it goes like that. It's so quick. So very quick. And what Peter is saying is this time right now, that life, I know it seems like you just started and it's a long way to go, but actually this little space we call a lifetime is just a tiny little blade of grass, a whole field, acres and acres and square miles of grass blades. There's so much more to life than this here now. Right? So much more. And Jesus is committed to getting us through this blade of grass because it is so crucial. God has appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You have right now, here, to affect all of eternity. But it just feels so uncomfortable living in the midst of pain, difficulty, and suffering. But Jesus says, follow me. I want to read you this uh, extended passage. It's written by one of my uh, really favorite authors. His name is Richard Rohr. And he's a a monk and philosopher and writer. And he wrote this piece on grieving just after 9-11 to help the uh, country understand from a spiritual perspective how to think about suffering and pain. And uh, I've redacted it quite a bit, but it's, uh, I think, worth your time. And at the end of this reading, I've put the URL for the whole article for you. And for some reason, it doesn't come up on Google search, so you may want to write this down. It's buried in uh, the archive somewhere. It doesn't come up in a search engine, so you'll need the URL if you want to read the whole thing. Um, which I think some of you will really enjoy. But let me read it for us. It seems that pain is the only thing strong enough. Suffering is, I'm sorry to say, the most efficient means of transformation. And God makes full use of it whenever he can. Grief has unparalleled power to open our eyes and open our heart, but only over the patient long haul. We must teach people not to get rid of the pain until we have learned what it has to teach us, not what it has to teach others. This is liminal and transformative space. Let me first explain what I mean by liminal space. Limina is the Latin word for threshold, the space between. Liminal space, therefore, is a unique spiritual position where human beings hate to be but where the biblical God is always leading them. It is when you have left the tried and true, but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It is when you are finally out of the way. It is when you are in between your old comfort zone and any, any possible new answer. It is no fun. Think of Israel in the desert, or Joseph in the pit, Jonah in the belly, the three Marys tending to the tomb. If you are not trained in how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you will run 
or more likely you will explain. Not necessarily a true explanation, but any explanation is better than scary liminal space. Anything to flee from this terrible cloud of unknowing. Those of a more fear-based nature will run back to the old explanations. Few of us know how to stay on the threshold. You just feel stupid there. Everything genuinely new emerges in some kind of liminal space. All the exorcism stories of the Gospels tell us that the only cure for possession is possession. If one is captured by a positive spirit, one can recognize, reveal, and let go of smaller and negative spirits without much fear or humiliation. You have something better to hold you and to hold on to. Inside of liminal space, you can reveal the shadow and not fall apart. You are contained and safe. Liminal space allows you to live with paradox, mystery, and even evil, although now you will have the power to stand against it properly. When Jesus enters the scene as the absolute and loving possessor of the soul, the possessed ones are rightly freed from their own false burdens and loyalties. My concern today is that many are trying to exorcise the demons without any positive repossession. I can say for sure that there will be no exorcism, only an exchange of demons. I guess what I'm trying to convey to you is that we need a faithful creator in our lives. We need somebody to take possession of us. And as scripture says, to be in us and to lead us forward, upwards, and out. And the way through that is the way we came in, through suffering. But the way out is not the same because Jesus is taking the lead. He is taking the brunt of the suffering for us. And we are invited now to our, not to re-experience our suffering but to identify with Jesus in his death so that we can be raised with him to new life in the power of the resurrection. This is the Christian message. It's not be better. It's not be a good person. It's not try harder. The message is nothing you've tried actually works. And how many decades and seasons will it take for you to come to terms with the fact that you by yourselves are a grand failure? When will you hit bottom? What will it take to hit bottom? When will you stop trying to forgive yourself because you've given up on yourself and then you're able to accept the forgiveness he has for you? His forgiveness mattered only anyways. You are not sitting on the bench. Who cares about your self-verdict? Who cares what you think? Your efforts, though try as you might, cannot lead you out. You need repossession by a faithful creator. You do. You do. It doesn't matter how young you are. You're out of the womb. You need a creator. You need a savior. You need a guide. 
what season, what decade, whatever life has to teach us, it comes down to this one lesson. This is the whole of the purpose of all of the problems in your life. It's to teach you to how to entrust yourselves. It's to teach you how to be repossessed. And I want to tell you, even the trusting is not your work. It's ceasing from work. It's draping yourselves over the shoulder of the one who is able to carry you out. And that is the lesson that I learn season after season after season after season. Somehow we try to possess. It's like sitting in a dentist chair. You told yourself to relax 10 seconds ago. When did you tense up again? It just creeps up on you. And here you are gripping all white-knuckled again as if that worked the last time. God is saving us not just from our efforts, from our instinct at effort. Our inclination, our nature is what he's trying to take possession of. And I want to tell you that God is faithful And he is worthy of your trust. And how do you know that? Well, besides the fact that you really have no other options. That's what the disciples learned. Where else shall we go? They asked. But it's verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Jesus died for your sins. That's how you know he is trustworthy. The proof is on the cross and the promise is in the resurrection. And so 1 Peter says in chapter 3, verse 18, and this is our closing today, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Church, God is faithful. Would you pray with me? I I feel as I uh, listen to my own soul in the preaching of this sermon that uh, many of us just need to pray the prayer of possession. To say to God, I give up. Show me how to drape myself over your shoulder so you can carry me out. So I invite you to pray that prayer. Say, God, if you are faithful, if you really are faithful, and if your love is true, then come one step closer and take me also. God, I lift up this church to you. A room filled with intelligence and competence and effort. Would you help us? Would you save us? In Jesus' name.